0: Well, as I said at the beginning, happy first Tuesday of Lent. Um, It was really great to see so many of you at our Ash Wednesday evening service last week. Uh, I love that service. I love the simplicity of it. I love the gravity of it. Um, I'm going to work on maybe making it a touch longer because this past year we were done in like 26 minutes. And um, I don't know. I think there's just an opportunity to maybe do some other things in there. So uh, if you were there, I hope it was meaningful to you. Guys, spring is almost here. It's going to be 70 degrees this week. (laughs) Keely, Spring means snow, but it's it's snow that goes away and doesn't stay for months and months and months. I still have snow in my front yard from November. I don't live on the East Coast. Where are we? Sunday's the time change. So the sun, it's going to be light out after 7 p.m. Yeah, you should celebrate. It's a good time to be alive. Um, I want to address something real quick before we get into our text tonight. Uh, I was talking with some friends of mine last week about Lent, and one said, I'm really bad at Lent. And I thought, man, isn't that something that all of us can relate to feeling? I'm really bad at Lent. I'm familiar with that feeling. I'm sure that you are too, if you've tried to engage in Lent. Um, and I think it's rooted, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, it's rooted in a fear of failure, which I am way too familiar with. Um, I think this fear of failure that, that, um, about something even as private as and hidden as our Lent practices can prevent some of us from not engaging it at all. This is why I usually don't do New Year's resolutions, because I know I'm not going to stick to them, so what's the point of like, even trying? Um, Why give up or take up something if I know I'm not going to stick to it? Why take up any sort of Lenten practice since we're already six days in? I've already failed if I haven't started at this point. Why be reminded of my inabilities? Why subject myself to more failure? These are all thoughts that I have had at some point, and I'm sure many of us have as well. If that's you tonight, first of all, I love you. Take a deep breath. I think it's good for us to all remember that there's no such thing as winning at Lent. There's no way to fail at Lent. The point is to be intentional to create space to encounter God. Um, I know from my life and for many of yours, we often encounter God in the deepest ways in the midst of our failures. Um, there's a lot to be gleaned from our failures in Lent. What does it say about the condition of our hearts that we failed in this specific way? There might be something there for you. It might not mean anything. It might mean that it's just a busy year. Maybe it helps us to see when we fail in Lent just how much of an idol something has become in our lives or how much something has become our source of identity when we try to give it up. Maybe it's an opportunity to be pointed towards our dependence on God and not our ability and not our ability to achieve something for him. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to experience the grace that God readily extends to us by being okay when we fail. Success or failure isn't the point. Intentionality and and encountering God is. And there's another side to all of this stuff in Lent. Um, What if I do all this stuff? What if I create space over the course of the, the weeks and I still don't hear anything from God? I still don't encounter God. What if I feel no different after all of this? There's a high probability that that will be the case. And that's okay. I tend to think that if you don't hear something or you don't encounter God in some way, maybe he didn't want you to. And I mean that in the best way. Nine times out of 10, when I experienced this or talked to someone who has, what God was actually leading them to um, wasn't some great epiphany or, or big idea or life-changing moment, but simply cultivating rest and intentionality in their lives. God knows what you need. Maybe what you need is rest. Maybe what you need is to stop trying so hard. And maybe if you heard something from him, it might cause you to keep striving and keep trying instead of resting and abiding. So don't put too much pressure on yourself with this. The journey of discipleship is slow and it takes a lifetime. And sometimes all God wants us to do is just rest and enjoy him. Lent's not something to achieve or to fail at anything. It's an invitation towards intentionality. I know that on some level we all know that, but I think it's good to be reminded. It's an invitation to embrace all the the failures and progresses along the way. Okay? Okay, great. Uh, Tonight, we're starting our series in Lent, which I'm really excited about. I know that I don't have a lot of affect up here, but I actually am excited about this series. Uh, for both the seasons of, of Lent and Eastertide after it, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is, as I said earlier, Jesus' most famous sermon. Um, it's lengthy, it's beautiful, it's radical, it's shocking, it's scandalous, and we're going to dig into it for the next few months. Uh, during Lent, as I said at the beginning, we're focusing on a portion of the sermon called the Beatitudes, which is Lent, or <laughs> Lent, been saying Lent a lot. Uh, It's Latin, which Lent is not Latin, never mind. The Beatitudes is a Latin word that means basically blessings. Uh, This is Jesus's intro to his larger sermon, and it immediately rocks the boat for his audience. You may know this, you may not know this. Uh, That's how things tend to be. Uh, When you're learning to public speak, which apparently I still very much am, one of the first things that you're taught Or at least one of the first things that I was taught is that you have to have a good intro. Your intro is where people decide within the first 30 seconds if they're going to keep listening to you. So most of you have stopped listening to me. Um, You have to, have to, have to capture people's attention with your intro, especially if your audience doesn't know you very well. Uh, This is why people often at the beginning of whatever they're going to say publicly make a really short, pithy statement to begin with that captures people's attention, or they'll say something really controversial, or they'll yell something crazy like sex, and then all of a sudden everyone's paying attention. Youth pastors do that. Don't worry about it. Or if, if if they're a pastor like the ones that I grew up hearing, they'll always, always, always read a funny joke that someone forwarded them in a long email chain that they thought was hilarious, but when they read it out loud, it's just not the same. Um, that was not forwarded to me in an email chain. I I made that one up. So take it or leave it. Uh, Jesus, though, was a master public speaker, far better than me, thankfully, he was great at capturing people's attention, and he opens this grand sermon of his with eight blunt statements that are shocking and scandalous and turn conventional wisdom on its head. He got everyone's attention, and over the next six weeks, we're going to explore these eight jarring proclamations that Jesus makes. Our text for Lent is Matthew 5, uh, verses 3 through 10, but tonight I'm actually going to start us out. Uh, we're going to zoom out and rewind a little bit so that we have some context for how this sermon comes to be, and what 's going on around it, so we 're actually going to start from the previous chapter, chapter four, starting in verse twenty three and we 're going to go all the way through uh, chapter five, verse ten, which isn 't that long you 're going to be fine, uh, and that goes like this: Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Pause here for a minute. (laughs) I I tricked the slide guy, sorry. Pause here. Don't don't go forward. Uh, Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. That is important. These are important details for us to know. Galilee is Jesus' hometown, and it's like a countryside suburb of the capital of Jerusalem. It would be like uh, Elizabeth for us. Like, people out there live very differently than we do. And if someone famous from their town shows up, or I don't know if anyone's ever been famous from Elizabeth, but it, it makes sense that the people in Elizabeth would be excited about that person. The Decapolis, on the other hand, is a group of 10 cities founded by and inhabited by Greeks. So not Jewish people at all. Decapolis literally means 10 cities in Greece. Uh, Jerusalem and J- Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish country of Judea, um, which basically, saying that people are from Jerusalem and Judea, it, it, we know that this crowd is made up of all different kinds of Jewish people. People from the coast, people from the countryside like Galilee and the elite who would have lived in Jerusalem. And then we're also told that there are people from the region across the Jordan, uh, which would have been inhabited by Syrians, again, non-Jewish people. This today uh, is the kingdom of Jordan. All this to say, Jesus is about to speak to an incredibly diverse crowd made up of of not just blue-collar Jewish people like himself, but all kinds of Jewish people and all kinds of non-Jewish or Gentile people. Keep that in mind. Okay, picking back up now in chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth.'" Uh, So I have to admit to you that tonight our focus was going to be the first and last of these statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For both of them, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uh, begins and concludes with the same promise to both of these groups of people. Um, We don't have time to talk about both tonight. If I were a better writer and a better speaker and a better organizer, maybe we could do that, but I just couldn't make it work. So we'll get into the first, and then I'm going to write up a blog post or maybe record another talk and post that up on tnl.org if you're interested. Um, But So let's start at the beginning. Again, Jesus is in front of this crazy, large crowd made up of all kinds of different people across a broad spectrum. There are rich and poor in front of him. There are Jewish and Gentile in front of him. There are clean and unclean. There are really religious people and really not religious people. There are upstanding people and sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes listening to what he is saying. And it's in the midst of this diverse crowd that Jesus begins his seminal work, his grand sermon with, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit for God's kingdom is theirs. God is available to them. That's a big statement. So first, who are the poor in spirit? Uh, It's been popular throughout church history to think of being poor in spirit spirit as, as something praiseworthy. Being poor in spirit being a praiseworthy term. Like it's something positive that we should strive for. Some level of achievement. Many have said that what Jesus is saying here is blessed are those who know that they need God. Which is certainly true. That statement is true. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Others have said that that Uh, basically what Jesus is saying here is blessed are those who have reached some level of humility where they are now called blessed. This understanding makes God's blessing conditional upon us attaining something, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying, because that is not at all in line with what the original sense of poor in spirit meant. Poor in spirit is a negative term it is not something to strive for. As Dallas Willard wrote in the divine conspiracy, The poor in spirit are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. The poor in spirit are those who are at the end of their rope, as Eugene Peterson wrote in his translation. These are the deplorable, uh, the morally empty, the failures, people without a trace of good in them. There's nothing praiseworthy or good about being poor in spirit, and yet Jesus opens his sermon by saying, These are the people that are blessed. This is scandalous. This is shocking. This is backwards. This isn't how it's supposed to be. God blesses those who follow him. God blesses those who keep the commandments. God blesses those who stay clean and aren't defiled. Those who strive and earn it. God doesn't bless those without any trace of good. God doesn't bless the spiritually and morally bankrupt. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. What Jesus says, blessed, what does he mean there? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. It's really complicated. It's a really complicated word to translate perfectly. It's been translated as fortunate or lucky. It's been really popular throughout history to translate it as happy. Um, But I think that falls really short, especially in the kind of shallow definition that happy holds today. I don't think these translations are good enough. You're lucky when you're starving. No. No. You're happy when you're mourning? Uh, no. A better understanding of what blessed means, according to a biblical scholar, Frederick Bruner, is to understand being blessed as a sort of divine solidarity. It's Jesus saying, I am with you. Or as Rob Bell puts it, it's God's way of saying, I am on your side. So the idea of blessed here is fortunate are you because God is on your side. So fortunate are the the morally bankrupt, the deficient, the pathetic, the failures, the deplorables, those with no trace of good, because I, God, am on your side. Jesus is proclaiming a truth about reality. He's not giving commands or or giving people instructions or telling people how to get God's blessing. As N.T. Wright puts it, the worst mistake we can make about this famous and stunning passage is to see it as a list of rules. You've got to try hard to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, and so on. It isn't. It's a royal announcement that God is turning the world upside down, or rather, the right way up. Jesus here is announcing that God is on the side of everyone whom God has no reason to be on the side of. It's completely nonsensical. It's confounding and it's comforting all at the same time. We so often think that the point of all of this, the point of of religion Uh, The point of church is, is to tell us what we can do to become deserving of God's blessing. What do I have to do to have a good life? What do I have to do to get into heaven? Whatever on earth that means. What do I have to do so God will bless my life? And here at the very beginning of his sermon, the very beginning of his public ministry, and then throughout the rest of his life, the answer that Jesus gives to the question, what must I do to deserve God's blessing is nothing blesses everyone who doesn't deserve it. God's kingdom is theirs. This literally, this first line that Jesus says publicly is the gospel. This is why it's called good news to this diverse crowd of people, most of whom who have been told and taught that they are outside God's blessing. Jesus says all who don't deserve the blessing of God, the blessing of God is yours. God is on your side. God is for you. You don't have to earn him or his blessing. It's already yours. God is already available to you. God's kingdom is now available to people who have no business of being there. And this is is the proclamation that we as the church are still supposed to be a bullhorn for today. Jesus makes the announcement to all of us in the church and especially all of us outside the church. To all the adulterers, to the sexually broken, the gossipers, the backstabbers, the addicts, the swindlers, the liars, the abusers, the murderers, the corrupt, the selfish, the dysfunctional. To everyone who has failed, to everyone who has cheated, to everyone who is bad at Lent, to everyone who can't stay away from alcohol and drugs and pornography. To all who have messed up beyond repair. To all who have been told or believed that they're worthless or evil or too damaged to be loved. God is is on your side. Already, right now. And it's not conditional. It's not God is on the side of those who know how much they need him. Or God is on the side of people who show how terrible they feel about what they've done. That's still conditional. That's still something we earn. That's still some level that we have to get to before God will deal with us. And that's not what Jesus taught God is on your side before you recognize anything about him or your need for him. You have access to God and his kingdom now. You can see why in just his opening statement, people would be mad at what Jesus was saying. These words are part of a large part of why he is eventually killed. Jesus launches his public ministry with these first public words that capture the very essence of who he is and what he is all about. Unconditional love and grace available to everyone. Before we've cleaned ourselves up, before we've gotten ourselves together, before we've done anything that might make us deserving of God's blessing, he already loves us. He already extends grace to us. He's already with us. He's already for us. He is already on our side. That is the best news. The question is, what will you do with this information? How will you respond to this? God, can, God is the only one who can transform you from being poor in spirit to rich in spirit if you will let him, if you will accept his love and grace and allow it to transform your life. He's already on your side, so what are you going to do about it? Or what if you wouldn't describe yourself as poor in spirit? Or perhaps maybe you recognize you can look back and think, at least on a philosophical level, you, you can say, I recognize that I was poor in spirit at one time, and maybe I could be again, but right now that's not how I would describe myself. I'm not currently there. Well, first of all, the message that Jesus just said is the message for you to relay to everyone around you. Blessed are the poor in spirit for God is on their side. This is a message for you to embody with your life as you join God to reduce suffering and increase joy, to reflect the love and grace of God to everyone around you, especially the people in your life who would, you would say are poor in spirit. And secondly, you'll have to keep coming back throughout Lent to hear what God might have to say to you through these beatitudes. Blessed are the screw-ups, the failures, the immoral, the ignorant, the damaged, and the broken. For God is on their side. Will you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful for your grace. I wish that we had stronger words to convey how beautiful and how ridiculous your grace is, how life-changing it is that I don't have to try to get myself together, that I don't have to hide my sin and pretend like I'm better than I am for you to pay attention to me. God, thank you that you are on our side before we even know anything about you. You are on our side while we do, while we make the choice to choose against you. You are on our side when we make a choice to choose death over life over and over and over again. You are still on our side. God, I pray that we would recognize that for ourselves and for everyone around us and that it would transform us more into the people that you created us to be, that it would change our lives and that we would become more loving and more graceful people. And God, if nothing else, I pray that during Lent, you would help us to see the ways that we are poor in spirit and for that to create a a deep desire and longing for more of you in our lives. God, we love you. Amen.